Hello and welcome to Smash Balls Radio Podcast for March 9th, 2013. I'm your host, Trevor Holtner, and today on the show, we spend the whole hour talking about patent laws. That's right, everyone's favorite brand of intellectual property nastiness is the subject of our inquiry today. We talk to lawyers, activists, and even an alleged patent troll, all to bring you up to date on this pressing current issue. This is not an episode you want to skip over. Today's show was born in the intro segment of another larger show, uh, WTF with Mark Marin. Last week, Marin spent uh, several minutes talking about Personal Audio, a company that has been sending letters to several large podcasters and has even opened litigation against Adam Carolla and the Discovery Channel's podcast network, uh, How Stuff Works, for allegedly infringing upon a patent they own. Here's a clip of that segment with permission from WTF. Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you? You know what? You know what? I'm not going to do the whole intro because I need you to pay attention to me for just one second. I know some of you may be in the habit of fast forwarding or moving up towards the interview, but I need your help. The medium of podcasting needs your help. There's something I need you to look into. There's some action I need you to take. Look, I haven't talked about politics in a long time. And right now I'm not talking about partisan politics. This is a nonpartisan issue that affects me personally right now, some other podcasters personally right now, podcasting in general, and many people in a lot of different areas of the tech industry. I don't know if you know what a patent troll is. Do you know what a patent troll is? Can I tell you what a patent troll is in, in a general way? A patent troll basically uses patents as legal re- weapons, all right? Instead of actually creating anything or, or making any products or coming up with any new ideas, what these trolls do they they are basically in the business of litigation or threatening litigation. And the way this works is patent litigation is very expensive. It could cost millions of dollars. This means that when someone is attacked by a troll, either being sued or bullied or muscled, uh, when they are faced with the cost of litigation, they'll just settle and not fight. And this makes the patent troll stronger. So the reason I'm telling you this is that podcasters are under attack from a patent troll called Personal Audio. Personal Audio claims to own a patent that covers basically all of podcasting. It's a very broad patent. This is not unusual. Broad patents like these are are very common these days. And unfortunately, they, they fall into the hands of these patent trolls. And as I told you, they're just companies that don't sell anything. They're in the extortion business. They extort money from businesses, from individuals, by demanding licensing fees. And, uh, you know, those are obviously cheaper than litigating a, a case in court. Now, some of you know Adam Carolla is being sued by this company. There are other people being sued by this company. Uh, some people, some podcasters have, uh, have received, uh, letters inviting them, quote-unquote, to license 
their patent, it's a problem because it not only is it extortion, but it threatens everybody. I mean, President Obama said that patent trolls are those who do not, quote, do not produce anything themselves, unquote, and are, quote, trying to leverage and hijack someone else's idea and see if they can extort some money out of them, unquote. It's a big problem for app developers. Uh, some of them have been targeted. And so have cafes and public spaces that, that have free Wi-Fi. It's scary shit. Because when this kind of stuff happens, especially to us, especially to people who are you know, working out of their garage or you who are trying to start your podcast, that all of a sudden this company, this troll company is going to shake you down to extort money from you and they're legally fortified to do it. It's scary. And it's happening. And it's now happening to podcasters. Now, here's what I need your help with right now. I may need more help later. We'll see. But this is something that we can all do actively and actually engage and use our government that is there to protect us. Two members of Congress, Representative Peter DeFazio, is a Democrat out of Oregon, and Representative Jason Chaffetz, Republican out of Utah, just introduced legislation that would make life a lot harder for patent trolls. Now, the bill is called the Shield Act, and it would require patent trolls to pay the other side's costs and fees when they lose. We need to make the troll business model less attractive so companies like Personal Audio leave podcasters alone. This is a good thing. This is a step in the right direction. And this is something you can help us on. I support this legislation, and I feel like... If you can do anything for me right now and for, for podcasting in general is go to uh, EFF.org slash shield EFF EF as in Frank F as in Frank dot org slash shield to contact your representative and tell them to make the shield act law. Everything is there for you to do. Make it very easy. It's a very easy thing to do. And it would help out. It would be a step in the right direction Because this thing is going to kill us. It's going to kill a lot of technology. It's a scary, fucked up bit of business. Just go to EFF.org slash shield. And all the information will be there for you to to find out what you, how you can do this. It's very easy. And if you really, if you want to learn more about patent trolls, I highly recommend Ira Glass's uh, This American Life episode, which is called When Patents Attack. Because this is an evil business. It's a wrong-minded and wrong-hearted business. It's predatory. It's it's coercive and bullying. And it's fucking real. And they've got an edge on the little guy like me or even you or anybody who wants to be part of this business. Scary shit. So if you can, help us out. Podcasters. Not just me. I'll let you know more as, as things unfold. But I appreciate it. Uh... Sorry about the tone, but sometimes it has to get serious in a big way, and we all have to be on the same page here. You know, as a podcaster and fan of many podcasts myself, it's hard for me to emotionally divest myself from this story. I mean, you heard the clip. It's hard to hear something like podcasting is in danger, podcasting is in jeopardy, and not think, well, I've got to do something about it. But I realized 
that this story was way out of my league in terms of pure punditry. Um, my initial plan for this episode was to spend a great deal of time railing against personal audio and patent trollery in general, but I just don't have the capacity to do that. It's such a large topic that I had to do the best job I could as a journalist, um, which is something that I have been claiming with this show, is that I am, in fact, a journalist, to make sure the entire story, as complex as it is, is told fairly. So I emailed the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I was put in touch with one of their activists, Adi Kamdar. For part one of today's show, you'll hear a recording of our conversation where he goes into detail about patent trollery and the SHIELD Act currently sitting in Congress that EFF supports. Next, I contacted Stefan Kinsella, an IP lawyer and writer in Houston, Texas. During part two, he will give a detailed historical account of patent and IP law while I try to stifle my coughs. Um, if you can't tell, I, I was sick uh, last week and I'm just now getting better on the Saturday that we're recording this, so kind of lucky there. But finally, in part three of today's episode of Smash Walls Radio Podcast, we'll talk to Richard Baker, the Vice President of Licensing for Personal Audio, the alleged patent troll and litigant against Ace Broadcasting. Following that, we will do a sort of detailed run-through of a deep dive article written by a newdomain.com, that is a newdomain.com reporter, uh, Gina Smith, uh, concerning personal audio and sort of the connections they have with the larger tech industry. And that's it. That's today's show. It's a lot drier than past shows, and, you know, maybe some people have come for other reasons than that. Maybe they just like the interviews that we do. Maybe they just like, you know, sort of the, the random babbling that I put up on the, you know, on the airwaves. But honestly, I've never been more excited to put something out than I have with this episode. I hope you guys enjoy. And without further ado, here is Adi Kamdar from the Electronic Frontier Foundation talking about S.H.I.E.L.D. and patent trollery in general. My name is uh, Adi Kamdar. I'm an activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which is an organization that does civil liberties related activism and litigation around the internet and around technology. And uh, I personally do a lot of blogging and outreach around issues of patents and copyright and free speech. And lately we've been dealing a lot with patent trolls and with the patent troll problem. And I think it's one major loophole in our patent system and something that needs to be fixed as soon as possible. All right, so I heard about this issue um, actually from listening to a recent episode of uh, the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. Yep. And uh, I know that he's been a pretty you know staunch supporter of, of what you guys are doing right now. Tell me a little bit about personal audio and their lawsuit with uh, Ace Broadcasting, the How Stuff Works podcast, and I believe there's another one that I'm actually forgetting right now. Uh, sure. So, Personal Audio is a company that is claiming it owns a patent that covers podcasting technology, and it sent a bunch of podcasters letters uh, demanding that they pay this company to use the technology. So, the way a patent troll works is uh, they have a patent, and they don't actually uh, create anything themselves, but they send letters to other companies that they claim infringe on their patents, and they say, hey, either pay us money or we'll take you to court. And podcasters or startups or whoever's on the other end, they're faced with two options. They either settle for uh, you know, some thousands of dollars, or they enter a case that could cost up to $5 million. And 
the choice to them is you know somewhat simple. Um, they they end up settling, which is unfortunate because then this troll, this figure, can go on and you know keep threatening other people um, or other uh, startups. So this personal audio patent is it's a software patent that's very broad and very vague, and it like some of the language it, it literally says it covers an apparatus for disseminating a series of episodes represented by media files via the internet as said episodes become available. Which, you know, okay, if you look at it on the face of it, it's podcasting. It, it covers, you know, any sort of media-based web series. This is something that's been going on for a while, and yet this... Uh, this patent exists. I. It's unclear why it exists or how it exists or how it can exist in such a broad form. And what that's allowed Personal Audio to do is to sue a bunch of com- or to sue some companies, but also to uh, target podcasters and force them to pay up. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is sort of the the fact that Personal Audio is going after. I mean, they're basically going after, like, like some of the top podcasts, you know, on iTunes or just in general in the world, and I wonder if that's because they know that they can't go after every single little, you know, Dick, Jane, and Mary who decides they want to put a podcast on a hosting site and, you know, distribute to their friends. I, I don't really know what their, um, you know, business intentions are, but part of it could just be that bigger name players probably have the financial capability to settle or to, you know, pay a little bit more money. Yeah. It's a, it's a gamble on their end because the bigger name podcasters are the ones with, you know, audiences of millions of people. Um, and they're the ones who have, you know, been our biggest allies in speaking out against patent trolls because they've riled up, you know, the troops and are able to show people up close and personally how absurd patent trolls as entities are. Yeah, absolutely. I also spoke, actually, with Richard Baker, the uh, vice president of licensing. Uh-huh. And, you know, he maintains that the the patent was created as sort of this package deal uh, in the same, you know, breath as they created the patent that they went after Apple with. You know, basically talking about a list, like, list of downloaded things, I think was the, is their sort of, the patent they went after Apple with. So they created this patent, I guess, in 1996, or they created this technology in 1996 with their personal audio player, which I have never heard of. Like, <laughs> it's if it exists, very few copies of it were made, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that the invention doesn't exist, but, like, they, they claim that the, the patent came from technologies that they created in 1996, and they've been trying to get patented since then, uh, I know that they filed the patent in question in 2009, and that patents generally take, what, 20 years to, to clear out? Uh, patents have a 20-year lifespan, yeah. so you know it may take a few years for it to be approved, uh, but then it's, it's true for 20 years. Yeah, and with this patent, um, what I got from Baker was that they only seem to be wanting to go after the larger name podcasters and hosting sites, which would make sense because they want they want the most money possible for their license, obviously. Uh-huh. But what I'm thinking they're going off of is the fact that they think that the court will 
you know, grant them legitimacy because they can prove all of these, you know, prior patents and prior inventions that, you know, they, they don't have to prove, I guess, uh, practicality or that it, that there's something that actually works. It's sure. just that it, it's, it, it exists and they were the first to patent it, which I think a lot of like legitimate businesses also do that as well. A lot of legitimate businesses do that. And, uh, you know, podcasting has been around for a little while, even before it was called podcasting. Yeah. Um, you know, a number of people in the early days of uh, the Internet had been releasing audio shorts or audio talks, uh, you know, on a regular basis. And this patent that they have is broad enough and has broad enough language that it could apply to those things in the past. So, I, I you know, there is prior art. And it, it, what you know, whatever happens next, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But uh, you know, maybe it's going to be invalidation of this patent, um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if people attempted that. The issue is, like they within this patent uh, pool of theirs, or if, if it was patented at the same time as um, you know whatever they went uh, after Apple with, you see this big player like Apple with a bunch of financial resources. Um, end up settling. Right. You know, what sort of precedent does that set? What sort of message does that send to everybody down the street? You want, I, I mean, ideally, these big players are going to, you know, not put up with trolls like personal audio and they're going to fight them. But, you know, on the other hand, fighting them is very costly. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time. Do you, do you know what's going on with uh, the lawsuit between Corolla and Personal Audio, or has that just sort of been, like, kind of kept quiet? Uh, it's, been, it's been kept pretty quiet. I don't know the particular details. That, that would be actually very interesting to find out, like, uh, sort of what the arguments each side's lawyers are making and uh-huh. whatnot. Just, I mean, just from sort of, like, an inside baseball perspective. That kind of brings us to the S.H.I.E.L.D. Act, uh, which I know two, uh, two representatives in the House are actually, I think they were presenting it today, weren't they? Uh, so they introduced it last week, and there was going to be a hearing about it today, but a quote-unquote blizzard... Mm. has postponed it in D.C. <laughs> okay. It was a blizzard that never was. So there, there should be a hearing in the Senate, uh, in the I guess the Senate Judiciary Committee has a subcommittee on intellectual property um, and patent issues, and there's going to be a hearing about the whole patent troll problem, hopefully soon. Tell the audience uh, what the S.H.I.E.L.D. Act is, what it wants to do, and... Uh, Sort of what sort of what what sort of road it would pave for the future? Sure, um, the Shield Act is a limited bill that tackles one particular problem with the patent system, and the patent system has a bunch of problems. But the Shield Act focuses on trolls in specific, and what it essentially says is, if a troll um, you know enters into a lawsuit with someone else, um, uh, if it turns out that um, you know the other person isn't actually infringing or that the patent itself is invalid, then uh, the troll has to pay the other side's fees, fees and costs. And, you know, like I said earlier, these things can go up to the millions of dollars. Um, The bill has some language in it that says, you know, when they enter into a lawsuit, when a patent troll enters into a lawsuit, they have to post bond. They have to, you know, put this money up initially. And what we're hoping this um, bill does is it prevents patent trolls from ever engaging in litigation in the first place. 
you know, this uh, this whole process is very expensive for a defendant, but for a patent troll, all they have to do is go to a court and basically show them their patent. Um, you know, they don't have to do any prior research or um, anything like that. So the financial incentives are very skewed. And uh, what this bill hopes to do is make it, you know, pretty much financially infeasible for patent trolls to, to enter into these sort of silly, frivolous uh, lawsuits. I guess the last question I have is, what would happen if Corolla lost the lawsuit? What what would the repercussions be for the podcasting community, um, for the larger profile podcasts that are sort of, or the higher profile podcasts that are sort of fighting this? What would it do? I hope he doesn't, um, and I don't think he will, but, um, you know, there, there are two ways to go about this. One is, you know, it's, it would be sad. It would be very unfortunate if a single entity like personal audio could, you know, take down an entire system, can take down an entire, you know, art form through litigation and through asserting its patent, um, its dubious patent at, at best. I think uh, people would be more fearful. People would be less willing to engage in podcasts, to participate in podcasts. You know, if you knew that this technology or this form of art is subject to, uh, you know, patent lawsuits that the other side is winning, it causes a sort of chilling effect. You don't want really want to go into this. That being said, I think if you lost, it would really highlight a major flaw in the patent system. And, you know, even even if he doesn't lose, to be perfectly honest, like, this whole situation is causing enough of a stink that people are realizing the patent system is broken. And it's broken in a number of ways, but one of the major, major issues is that patent trolls exist, and they're exploiting the loopholes in the legal system, and they're targeting creators like podcasters um, and innovators and end users who use things like Wi-Fi and offices that, you know, scan documents. Um, it, they're absurd entities who are engaging in very frivolous lawsuits, and it's a huge tax on innovation. All right, well, that's going to do it. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. Adi Kamdar is an activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation specializing in copyright, patent, free speech, and intermediary liability issues. He studied history of science at Yale University, where he was chapter president and a member of the board of directors of Students for Free Culture. Previously, he interned at EFF at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society and with the Open Video Alliance. In his free time, he enjoys improv, music, things that are delicious, and being outdoors. You can follow Adi on his personal Twitter account at Adi Kamdar, that's A-D-I-K-A-M-D-A-R, We'll put the relevant links in the description of our YouTube video and on our website. Additionally, check out EFF.org SHIELD to find out more about the SHIELD Act, and if you want, contact your congressperson. People are marching against the chiefs of industry who are trying to protect their intellectual property. Secret negotiations to make a secret deal. They've got Warner Brothers, Sony, and the presidential seal. They say they lobby on behalf of you and me. I say steal this MP3. 
Fifty years ago, what some call the golden age, indie FM was the king. The world was a stage, independent labels made records by the score. Enter 2012, now there are only four. I've got words for these plutocrats who claim to represent me. That was David Rovix with Steal This MP3. Our next interview is with Stefan Kinsella. Stefan is an intellectual property lawyer with the Kinsella Law Group in Houston, Texas, and a libertarian legal theorist. He has written for the Ludwig von Mises Institute and LouRockwell.com. His most recent book, titled Against Intellectual Property, is available in PDF format at the Ludwig von Mises Institute's website. We'll put a link in the description below. This is Stefan Kinsella, the patent attorney in Houston, Texas. I am the executive director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom and the executive editor and founder of the journal Libertarian Papers, and I have been an intellectual property abolitionist for quite a while now. So the first thing I kind of want to talk to you about is the history of patent law and how it led to uh, the Supreme Court sort of letting software get patented and also genetic material. Uh, so. Sure. Sure. Well, as a, for a brief history, um, patent and copyright are two types of intellectual property law. Uh, they are both authorized in the United States Constitution from, uh, from 1789 onwards, and uh, they arose out of the practice uh, centuries before in England and Europe, where the Crown would grant monopolies to you know court cronies and favored. Uh, uh, businesses that they wanted to, you know, have favors from. So they would just grant a monopoly on playing cards or on uh, certain types of animal hide and things like this, um, solely for protectionist and uh, mercantilist purposes. And that that sort of morphed into what's called the Statute of Monopolies in sixteen, I want to say sixteen twenty three, um, which was kind of the, the genesis of of uh, modern patent law. That statute tried to eliminate a lot of the abuses of the Crown granting these monopolies to court cronies, but it, 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 allowed, it, it remained, it retained the ability of um, there to be patents granted for inventions. So the one that survived was the one we still have today. Um, now, the way the patent system works, it's highly bureaucratized, and um, there's a detailed statute, the Patent Act, which, classic, which uh, specifies which types of inventions or eligible for patent protection, okay? That's mm -hmm. called statutory subject matter. And also the invention has to be new or novel, we call it, and also non-obvious, which is the most vague part of the test. Statutory subject matter is the types of things you can get a patent on. You can't get a patent on a book. That's what copyright is for. A book is not an invention. It's not a practically useful like machine or process. You can't get a patent on an abstract law of nature like e equals mc squared or a mathematical algorithm because that's not really a practical, inventive technique or having a practical application. Um, so then the question is, well, what can you get a patent on? And the patent statute says you can get patents on asexually reproduced plants. That's plant patents. That's a special type of patent. And you can also get a patent on some types of ornamental designs. That's a design patent. And those two are relatively... Um, I won't say harmless, but they're not the big ones. The big one is what's called a utility patent, or a patent on a useful process, or machine, or article of manufacture, or composition of matter, like a drug. So it's basically some object, like a machine, or it's, it's a process. A process is a way of doing something. So then the question is, well, what if you create life? 
So I believe that you know early on it was decided that human life would not be patentable because of public policy reasons. But there were some early decisions on about the Harvard mouse allowing uh, you know genetic sort of inventions. Um, that's how we have gene patents nowadays. Oh, that's under uh, review by the by the court, the Supreme, the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens there. Um, so then the question is, what about a, a, a software which is protected by copyright now too? By the way, the code is protected by copyright because it's, a, it's, it's an art, it's an artistic expression or an original expression of an idea. Right. Um, so the question is, software is functional, is useful too. And uh, so early, you know, there's nothing in the patent statute that says software can't be patented, or rather a computer running a certain type of code. So the cases started grappling with this, Diamond B. Deere, these kind of cases. And in the 90s, when I started practicing patent law, uh, there was a flurry of cases trying to deal with the emerging attempt by, you know, uh, companies to patent uh, software. And cases like Allopat and Donaldson... Um, and then the State Street Bank case, and then most recently Bilski. So the standards keep kind of changing back and forth, but um, business method patents and software patents uh, were easier to apply for in the wake of those decisions in the 90s uh, because they basically recognized that there's no, I mean, if you could patent a process, if you look at the flowchart of a computer program, it is a process. It's a way of doing something. Right. And so some of the early cases says as long as you can tie it to a concrete and useful result, um, like, if it just computes a number, that's probably not good enough. But if it computes a number that is like a temperature or it's a signal that tells a rubber curing process to stop curing right now, so you have a tangible result at the end, you know, some kind of appropriately cured rubber or something like that because of the running of the program. And then another strain of thought was that when you actually run a program on a computer, you load the sequence of instructions into the, the RAM, the memory of the computer, you actually re, re, reroute different transistors and switches inside the computer, and you basically make it into a new machine, at least temporarily. And that new machine is patentable. Uh, the idea is that what does it matter if I, hard, if I have a hardware-encoded machine that can do, do a certain function or if it's software that's running on it? I mean, really, there's no, there's no difference. So now we're getting a lot of pushback because um, software patents are getting to be a problem. Partly they're a problem distinct from regular patents because they're harder for the examiners in the patent office to search for prior art because a lot of the prior art is just all the billions of lines of code that exist out there in the world in, in programs. It's not really disclosed in the patent applications that in the patent application database that the patent office typically would uh, search through, or even in journal articles. They don't usually have the complete source code, um, and you're not required to disclose the source code when you file a patent application for software, just like the kind of block level, uh, flowchart level is what you have to disclose. Uh -huh. So it's really hard for them to, for the patent office to do a good job finding similar techniques that were used two, three, four, five, you know, 10, 20 years ago so then they'll issue a patent on a, on, a, on a software patent, on a software invention, that really is not new or not obvious in view of the prior art that the patent office could have found if it had been omniscient. Okay, so that that seems like it brings us pretty nicely to, to patent trolling and what that is. Uh, the reason why I'm doing this, this particular show uh, is because... 
I, I caught wind of this uh, company called Personal Audio. In, it's actually based in Texas. Uh, and they, they basically patented podcasting, uh, which it's kind of ironic. I'm doing a podcast about a company that wants to basically go after podcasting. Uh, but they, they file a patent. It's us eight million or yeah, 8 million, 112,504 B2. Uh, and it says, uh, I guess their abstract says an audio program and message distribution system in which a host system organizes and transmit transmits uh, program segments to client subscriber locations. The host organizes the program segments by subject matter and creates scheduled programming in accordance with preferences associated with each subscriber. That's basically the entire act of like any sort of RSS subscription or yes, podcasting. That's correct. Yeah, now I've read the patent and um the abstract is really not that important. What's important is, is the claims. That's uh-huh. where the property rights come from. But the claim one reads roughly like what you just said. So they have a very broad patent. It, it, now, this patent was just issued, but it, it was filed in 1996, I believe. So it sort of was pending for a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, but now, what that means uh, is the patent should expire in three years because patents now last for 20 years from the date of, earliest date of filing. So... They took 17 years to, to prosecute it, so they only have three years left. So that's the good news. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a problem. So you could say, well, that's obvious, and everyone's been knowing about this kind of thing for a while, but I don't know if they knew about it before 1996. So um, it's very possible the patent may be valid. Well, and yeah, that's 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 sort of why I, I wanted to talk to you, because I know that I know your position on uh, intellectual property, property broadly is is, as you said at the beginning, abolitionist. And so... Uh, sort of, what, what effect could, uh, or could, hello, English, uh, what effect could patent trolling have on, uh, specifically podcasting and more broadly just, uh, the tech industry, uh, and innovation, uh, entrepreneurship, that kind of thing? So, um, I kind of have a contrarian view on the patent troll issue. I actually don't think they're as harmful as regular patent, uh, info, uh, uh, asserters, you know, people that assert their patents, they're bad, but they're not the main problem, nor uh-huh. are software patents. I think this is a distraction. Um, uh, let, let me explain why, number one, why they're in Texas. It, um, when you file a patent lawsuit, you can choose the federal district court that you want to sue in, Okay. as long as you have some connection. So the eastern district of Texas up in Marshall, this little, little podunk town, uh, northeast Texas, has been known to have juries and judges that are very fast and they've gotten good at patent law by now and they give very large awards to the winners of patent infringement cases. I don't know why. Maybe it was a fluke at first, but then everyone started filing their suits there and now this has become their cottage industry, sort of like Delaware is where everyone incorporates, so they get really good at corporate law and this town wants to keep having suits filed there. Um, you know, they want to get the business. Yeah. So they keep issuing... So what happens is you have all these little buildings where companies will just rent an office suite and they'll just put their name on a door and incorporate in Texas or have some connection to Texas so they can justify filing there. They don't have any people there. They're just these, there's, there's hallways full of empty offices with just the names of these little patent troll companies all over them uh, just so they can sue in Marshall. So this is kind of a new, I wouldn't say it's an abuse of the system. It's the way the system uh, works. It's what it permits. Yeah. So that's why they're in Texas. Um, under the patent law, 
what you have to do to get a patent is you have to have something that's an invention, that's a type of statutory subject matter, as I mentioned. Has to be, you have to show to the examiner that it's novel and not obvious. It also has to have utility. That means it has to work. It has to function. So you couldn't get a patent on a perpetual motion machine, which is not usually the problem. Um, technically, you're supposed to what's called reduce it to practice, which means you're supposed to make the invention. But there's a loophole, which is when you file a written patent application disclosing your ideas with the patent office, that's called a constructive reduction to practice. So it just substitutes for actually making the thing. So I can literally brainstorm right now, sit down for an hour and write a patent application out, file it electronically, and then I've reduced it to practice. So there's no requirement in the patent law that requires you to ever make the thing yourself or to sell it or to produce it or anything like that. Um, now, the patent office has the ability to request a working model on occasion. Don't really think it'll work or something like that, but that's very rare. I've never had that happen to me. So basically, there's no requirement to make a working model. What that means is companies like Apple have tens of thousands of patents, and some of them might cover products they make, and some might not. And then you have patent trolls, which are just companies that only own patents. Now, when Apple sues Samsung for violating a, um, a smartphone <coughs> patent, um, Samsung has its own war chest of patents, and Samsung can dig through its patents and try to find one that Apple plausibly infringes and countersue Apple for that. Yeah. So they can sue each other because they're both kind of the same business. They both have patents and they both have products, so they're both vulnerable to a suit, which is one reason why sometimes these types of companies never sue each other in the first place. They just they keep an eye on each other and they leave each other alone. It's like mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Or if they do sue, they, they end up cross-settling. They, they end up settling and doing a cross-license, and, um, and then they go back to their business. One pays the other a net sum of money, and then they go back to their business. The problem with, uh, and by the way, small companies don't have that advantage because they don't have the resources to fight Apple. No, of course not. They don't, have a lot of, they don't have a lot of patents to counter-sue with anyway. So this is why patents create walled gardens and barriers to entry in oligopolistic, you know, kind of quasi-monopolized industries like the smartphone industry. Little, little guys have trouble getting into it. Um, but the problem with the patent troll is they don't make anything, so you can't counter-sue them. So they're not afraid to sue anyone, right? Right. Now, on the other hand, the good thing about a patent troll is they just want money. They don't want to put you out of business. The fact that they put you out of business, they're worse off because what they want is they want you to pay them some kind of upfront license fee and maybe back damages for what your infringement in the past has done. And then they want you to pay a royalty, like a small percentage of your sales going forward until their patent expires. So they just want a cut of your business, sort of like the mafia trying to do a shakedown, right? They, they don't want the bakery owner to go out of business or the meat shop owner to go out of business, they want to take a little bit, they just want to wet their beak, so to speak, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, at least the patent troll, like, if he comes after you or me, I mean, I presume, I'm not making any money off my podcast. Neither Some am I. Big guys, no. Adam Carolla is making money off his, Leo Laporte makes money off the Twitter network. Right. He's going to want a cut of what they're making, and presumably, he'll, he'll ask only for enough that they can get away with paying and still survive. Um, but, if, Apple sues Samsung or Apple sues a small company, they don't want royalties. They want to use the court's injunctive power to shut down, their, to actually prohibit the competitor from selling this device. So they're actually worse. Now, my, from estimates I've seen, 
patent trolls have caused something like five hundred trillion, about five hundred billion dollars of damage in the last several years to the economy. Uh, that's just a rough estimate. It's hard to know for sure. Yeah. Um, I think I've seen estimates twenty, thirty, thirty billion dollars a year. But I think that's a drop in the bucket compared to what regular patent owners like Apple do. Um, I think they impose, let's say, ten or twenty times that on the economy. So patent trolls are bad, and I wouldn't mind adding a requirement to the patent law requiring a working requirement or, or a reduction of practice requirement. Um, but that that's just a band-aid on the problem, and uh, or even eliminating software patents. Even if you could do that, I mean, as long as you're going to have process patents allowed, and as long as computers are machines, I don't really see how you could actually ban software patents. I guess you could do some creative drafting, but then patent lawyers are creative too. They will find ways to describe the software in a way that gets around that prohibition, I believe. So the real problem is not software patents. It's not low-quality patents. It's not inefficiency of the PTO. It's not uh, patent trolls. The real problem is high-quality, good patents held by what's called practicing entities like Apple. See, a, right. a patent troll, the technical term, is a non-practicing entity because they're not practicing the invention. And you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear critics of this phenomenon who are not IP abolitionists, they're confused. They'll say things like, well, it's not fair that this patent troll is suing you for something they don't even make. As if... It's as fair. If, if they do make it and they're suing their competitors to shut them <laughs> down, that's fair. I mean, it makes no sense. Right. Uh, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And actually, um, when I sort of semi-announced that I was going to be doing an interview with you, uh, someone on my Facebook wall wanted me to ask you about Monsanto. And I think that that probably falls pretty well into that practicing entity category. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're not a troll. I mean, they, they actually, they're enforcing their patents. Now, they, I, don't, I don't know if you say they're trying to shut the farmers down. They're just trying to force the farmers to rebuy the patent yeah. season at an inflated price every season or something like that. It's so outrageous. Uh, and the court's going to hear this. They already, they, in fact, the court already, the Supreme Court already heard this the other day. I read, I read some reports of the oral arguments. Um, I suspect they're going to uphold it because, it's, and I don't blame them. It's not really, there's nothing they can do. The patent statute is horrible. It's totally unobjective law. Um, um, and it, it gives companies the right to have these, these plant-based patents or these seed patents. Um, but it's so bad that there's even cases where, like, Patented seeds will will blow from one farmer's field on the wind to a neighboring farmer's field, and basically contaminate his ground and starts growing this modified corn. And then Monsanto shows up with uh, with thugs, tells them you got to cut the corn down or pay us a royalty. It's it's insane. They ought to, they ought to, they ought to be paying damages for polluting the farmer's land, you know, with their with their seeds. By the way, I don't know if you've read this. Have you, are you familiar with Daniel Daniel J. Suarez, his two books, uh, Demon and Freedom? Uh, I, I feel like I've heard of those before, but I, I haven't read them. Yeah, they're really cool uh, sci-fi books and uh, set in the near future where like all these sort of uh, do-it-yourself kind of things are becoming online. You know, people are running around the state. It's sort of like leftist agorism run, going crazy. Okay. It's just really cool. And uh, there's a scene there where you have basically the police state thugs with Monsanto-type lawyers just descending upon farmers and trying to shut them down because they have these crops. I mean, it's 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 uh, it was fiction a few years ago, but now it's uh, kind of coming true. It's it's totally possible that 
the specific patent that Personal Audio has is completely valid, and but they're only going after money. I mean, that's that seems like uh, when I talk to uh, the VP of licensing at Personal Audio, that's sort of all he uh, hinted oh, at. You, wait, you did talk to him? I did talk to him. Yeah. How? How did that happen? Uh, well, <laughs> I got home from work, and it was like 6 in the evening, and I called him, and he, what, I told... you mean just after you heard about what was going on, you just gave him a call? Yeah, like, I gave him a call, set up my recorder, and was like, uh, I'm a, I'm a reporter, can I talk to you? And he was like, yeah, sure, and I'm gonna be playing that audio clip on the show, I can send it to you early, uh, if you want to listen to it, and, but it's like, he, he basically just told me, yeah, uh, we're... We're just we're just asking you know for a cut of what's ours essentially, so exactly what you just said that they're they're asking for a percentage. Yeah, they're trying to wet their beak. <coughs> Which uh, yeah, I mean, and look, the thing is, uh, he said they want a cut of what's theirs, but I mean, there's no patent law doesn't require you to show that the person you're suing learned about the invention. From your patent, okay. They might, have, they might have independently come up with it on their own. There's no copying requirement in patent law. In copyright law, there is, but not in patent law. Um, in fact, I think like I don't know, three fourths of all patent lawsuits never even allege that there was copying. Sometimes they allege it because it makes it you look even worse. It's called willful infringement. But you don't have to show it at all. So everyone is everyone that is kind of defender of patent law says, well, it's wrong to just take someone's ideas and profit from it. Which is not, by the way. There's nothing wrong with using information you've learned and profiting from it. But even if it was, that's not what patent law prohibits. That that seems even more insidious. Like the fact that you don't even have to be like accused of copying someone's idea or or invention to to get sued in a patent case. Yeah. Like, now there is a. Uh, the, I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation and some other groups are uh, uh, pushing this. Uh, sh- Shield Act, S H I E L D Act. Yeah. And if I recall, I think it basically, um, uh, I think it, 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 it protects you from liability if you can prove you didn't um, you didn't copy the idea from someone else or something like that. But what that's going to do is that's going to defeat the whole purpose. Of the, the whole purpose of the patent system is it's called a bargain. The bargain is society will grant you a temporary monopoly on your filed invention in exchange for you disclosing to the world what you're doing instead of keeping it secret. So you have this massive database of 8 million patent applications or more and patents, which theoretically, you know, you know, there might be a brand new patent just issued to yesterday, which is enforced for another 17 years, let's say. But at least other scientists and engineers and uh, businessmen can read it and they can learn from it and start experimenting and get ideas from it. But what this will do is if, if, we, if we exempt people from liability, if they don't they don't. They didn't copy it. They're gonna. They're gonna start telling their engineers never look at the patent database because then we can prove that we didn't learn it from the patent database. So it defeats the whole purpose. Although I still would be in favor of that law. It'd be, it'd be a horrible distortion of everything. Um, another provision someone proposed is that um, make the. And this may be in the Shield Act too. I can't remember. But make make the losing. Um, uh, Make the losing patent plaintiff, or at least it's make the losing. Oh, that's what that's what this thing thing is. Make the losing patent troll pay the legal costs of the victim. Yeah, but, but I see no reason why that's restricted to trolls. It makes no sense whatsoever. Why should 
Why should Apple not have to pay the, the legal costs of someone that they sue if they lose? I mean, it makes no sense. Well, I think it goes back to that, to uh, what you were talking about, how people who aren't against intellectual property but are against patent trolls being kind of confused and like what but see the thing is patent trolling is not illegal as I said there is no working requirement right law. so to, 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 to discriminate against trolls and non-trolls because the trolls aren't working the invention but there's not a requirement that they work the invention so it's kind of a weird I mean if you want to change the statute to say you have to have a, a working model and sell the product for the, to enforce your patent that's fine Right. Then you don't need the shield act. Then trolls wouldn't be able to sue anyway. Well, uh, this has been a, a, a great discussion. Uh, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the show and talk about this and clear stuff up because I'll be honest, uh, I am not in any way a law student and it just it's very confusing to me. And so this has sort of illuminated a lot of things greatly. Um but yeah, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, I enjoyed it, Trevor. When we come back, our interview with Richard Baker. heard Chumbawamba performing their song Smash Clause 28, which I think came out in 1986 or 7. Our next interview was conducted over two phone calls stitched together. The subject is Richard Baker, the Vice President of, of uh, Licensing for Personal Audio LLC. You can visit personalaudio.net to view their patent that they filed and received that covers podcasting as well as other patents that they filed and hold. Uh, we are currently trying to get in contact with Richard Baker, the Vice President of Licensing for Personal Audio, LLC. Richard Baker speaking. Hi, Mr. Baker. Uh, my name is Trevor Holtner. I am an independent reporter up in Oklahoma. And I was wondering if I could ask you a couple questions. Um, sure. Uh, and this is just about um, general information on your company's uh, podcast patent. Certainly. I'll see, see if I can help. All right. Um, kind of what I wanted to know is how you guys came about uh, sort of creating the patent and... Uh, any information you can get on sort of filing the patent and when that was uh, awarded to you? Okay, the, um, the, the, the patent came from um, uh, mostly Jim Logan with a, a couple other people he's working with. Um, Mr. Logan uh, started a, uh, a startup company back in the mid-90s and, um, and uh, with his own money. I think he invested... 
uh, millions of his own money into the startup. Um, and as part of that, they uh, they filed patents on the, on the inventions that they had. And um, you know, those patents are the ones that uh, you know that, that are now being you know that that's uh, that we're now enfor- um, uh, enforcing. So we're trying to license. And how how wide is the uh, particular? Uh, patent on podcasting. How how far does that go? <laughs> well, the, the way you tell how far a patent goes is you, you look at the patent itself, and there are claims in the back, um, numbered. You know, they're, they're usually numbered one, two. Uh, I think this one has about thirty three claims in it, and that's what defines the scope of the patent. Mm-hmm. What are you guys seeking with the let, uh, litigation against uh, Ace Broadcasting and um, the How Stuff Works uh, network? What, what are we seeking? Yes, are you seeking um, licensing fee, like back licensing fees, or are you seeking um, something else? Um, you know, we're seeking. You know, we're just seeking compensation for uh, you know for. Um, you know the, the inventor's uh, invention. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's you know we're, we're looking for a very reasonable license fee. Uh, okay, and currently, how much is um, sort of up for grabs in the in the suit? In the lawsuit, um, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember, and if I did. That that gets into litigation strategy that we really can't. Uh, I can't answer that. I'm sorry. Oh, that's fine. Um, let's see here. Uh, so, sort of just kind of an esoteric question, or you know, outside of you know the immediate situation. Uh, do you guys think that something like podcasting can actually be um, patented? Because it's it's such a it's such a large uh, sort of medium. Um, pretty much, I think the Supreme Court said that you know, well, there, there you know there's huge you know software all sorts of different software can be patented. Um, this is, you know, it, it's a, it's just a, a, a tough question. I'd have to think of how to answer that on the record. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. Uh, um, that's fine. But but yeah, uh, yes. Um, you know, this has been. Um, you know, the, the patent office has reviewed this. I uh, went through a thorough examination. And, you know, I've worked in the industry for, uh, you know, for well over a dozen years. And to me, um, you know, this is a good patent, but it, it, uh, this is certainly reasonable. Mm-hmm. And critics are saying that you, that you and your, or not you personally, but you, uh, your company, Personal Audio, is a patent troll. Uh, can you respond to that criticism, or? 
when I think of a patent troll, a lot of times, what I think is somebody that goes out, buys a patent, and, you know, goes out and tries to hold people up for the cost of litigation. This is a completely different situation. This is a, uh, you know, this is a, a small businessman, an entrepreneur, who invested a ton of his money into uh, to a startup, mm-hmm. uh, who still owns the patent, and is just trying to get compensation for for his hard work as an inventor. This is what the patent system is for. Right. Um, it says here that, uh, well, it says on the website that uh, the podcasting patent stems from um, the 1996 personal audio player. Uh, yes. And the date of the patent however, says uh, February 7th, 2012. Um, now, in that media, in that like intermediate space, uh, podcasting has sort of been around, you know, since the early 2000s. Um, I guess my question is, you know, and in fairness, I, I definitely don't want to, you know, label you guys as a patent troll, because that would be uh, irresponsible. But... Um, why didn't you guys sort of go after the patent earlier? Or why didn't you uh, sort of try to get compensation earlier? Okay, and this has to do with how the patent, how patents work worldwide and, you know, how the system has run for 100 or, um, or 200 years. The, the invention was described in a specification for the patent that, that describes everything that um, Mr. Logan was working on. Then you, we, um, in that, and, and that was filed in 1996. Right. And there's a set of claims based on that. Now, the inventor, had, and the way the patent system works is you can continually refine your claims as long as you know, the patent is still pending. Once everything is issued, you can't change the claims anymore. Right. But while it's still um, while it's still pending, he filed a second patent off of that. Um, I think it's, I, I don't remember how many, but there's like six or seven patent applications that came off of that same specification. Okay. So the specification stayed the same, and it's just a set of claims. Um, it would be similar to, to you know, uh, homesteading a, uh, a, uh, a, a lot of land. And then, you know, the first time you draw the, the boundaries, um, you, you know, you, you describe it. And then you realize, well, nobody's own, you know, that land adjacent to me could be added to that. You just, you just further refine what you can, uh, what is yours. That's the the way the patent system works. Mm-hmm. Now, so it's all off of the same description from 
I have one more question, and then I will let you go. And, and again, I'm I'm sorry for not getting all of this in not, one phone not, call. <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. What What is your plan uh, to after you know if you win the lawsuit? What is your plan um, to sort of make sure that you're fairly compensated uh, from here on out? Are you going to go to podcasting, uh, you know, providers and you know require uh, sort of licensing fees, or what is the company's plan for that? You, you mean as opposed, you, you can get a license, you know, for each use. You can only get one compensated once. So, you know, we've got we're going after, you know, for instance. Um, if we get a license fee from Ace Broadcasting for the Corolla show, we can get one, we get paid once by Adam Corolla, we couldn't get paid by anybody else for that. Mm -hmm. Is that that your question? Well, uh, no, my question is, um, how how are you going to approach the larger podcasting uh, sort of medium with, uh, you know, wanting to be compensated? I mean, other podcasters beyond the... Um, beyond Ace Broadcasting, beyond uh, how stuff works, and uh, I think the TG uh, Entertainment... They're talking that out of... Um, they're in, in Texas, someplace around Tyler, Texas. Okay. Um, you know, if you're, if you're asking, would we sue other, other companies? I can't answer that question. Um, you know, that, that's... Getting into legal strategies, I can't answer. That's fine. Um, uh, just I, I would will say that we're, you know, we're, we're certainly looking to license, um, you know, licenses patents. Okay. Beyond the, um, uh, beyond those three, we've we've sent letters to a number of companies that we hope will, uh, you know come to a license with us on amicable, you know, amicably without having to, uh, to resort to litigation. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it. Okay. Again, if there's anything else, feel free to give me a call back. I don't mind taking the call. Right. I just appreciate the chance to uh, have our sides uh, told. So to follow up on that uh, interview that I just did with Richard Baker, um, there's this article on a new domain.net that is a new domain.net uh, by Gina Smith uh, that sort of talks about personal audio and their possible connections with um, a group called um, Intellectual Ventures. According to Smith in her article, we know from court documents that the biggest tech firms in the world support uh, intellectual ventures and invest millions in it. A source from Verizon told me it was protection money and that the millions it spent were so it could use IVs, tens of thousands of patents to protect itself. We know from a Stanford Law Review article that IV is a firm, perhaps not the only one, that sues companies under the veil of more than 1,200 strangely named shells. We know that even self-appointed investigators of IV, like IP Touch, did not disclose ties to IV when it announced it was starting an outing mission to find out who IV really was. We also know that in a recent USPTO call for comments on transparency issues around patent trolls, that one proponent was actually an IV attorney. Below the fold, you'll find a letter from law professor Robin Feldman making the case for more transparency. 
As you can see from the corporate wiki snapshot, I took personal audio LLC based in a patent litigation-friendly area in Texas doesn't stand alone. James Logan and other individuals and entities are all connected. All would potentially benefit from personal audio LLC's settled cases, including agreements in various outgoing patent suits or ongoing patent suits against Apple, Amazon, Sirius, Samsung, and other major companies and big podcasters the world over. Its suit against Adam Carolla and his Ace Broadcasting is readable in place below. The patent, the broad patent that that particular case is based on is one U.S. Patent 8,112,504, System for Disseminating Media Content, representing episodes in a serialized sequence by Logan et al., the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office granted it on February 7, 2012. Basically, it appears to cover anything that one would call a podcast. Okay, and then there's a diagram, and there's some other stuff. And I will post the link to this article in the uh, description. Here's the case. Okay, so there's that. Bringing, bringing us back to the original question, who is Personal Audio LLC, and additionally, did inventor James Logan really and truly understand what he was inventing when he first filed for this invention, describing pretty much ev- exactly what podcasters do today, offer episodes of audio shows via a predetermined URL? Remember that Personal Audio LLC has brought 10 patent infringement cases against more than a dozen companies, including the one it lost to Apple, plus suits and settlements with Amazon, Samsung, and many more. The company, looking at corporate records for Personal Audio LLC, the Beaumont, Texas entity that is the suing entity, and Personal Audio Inc., have in common the inventor James D. Logan. He holds at least 29 U.S. patents. We know Logan was the CEO of Microtouch Incorporated, a company the, th- the 3M company bought after a gnarly bidding war with Tyco Electronics. The SEC fined Logan for certain actions that he took as part of the Microtouch sale. Shortly after, Logan worked for GoToIt Media, a company that was later purchased by Digital Smiths Incorporated. Some patents Logan originally filed were acquired by GoToIt and then Digital Smiths, and here is where it gets interesting says renowned patent attorney and advisor to the United Nations, Tom Ewing. The emerging patent market seems to have been good for inventor Logan. In addition to his litigation victories in the Apple case and others, he has also sold five patents to Apple, one patent to Motorola, and two patents to at least one LLC that is a shell company for intellectual ventures. There is a second LLC he he sold patents to that is also suspected to be an IV shell company, he added. Selling patents to intellectual ventures is common. Most major tech firms in the world have invested in the multi-billion dollar patent assertion firm as a form of protection, one source told me. Members who invest get access to certain patents that they might use in offensive or defensive strategies. And then there's that Logan firm called GoToIt, which he later sold to what's which he later sold what's GoToIt got to do with it. Uh, GoToIt sued Microsoft for patent infringement related to MS Silverlight product use during the 2008 Olympics, uh, patent expert Ewing said, again drawing from public records. Documents from that litigation showed that Motorola was a significant shareholder in GoToIt. So James Logan and Motorola are connected or were. As for Microsoft, whose former CTO Nathan Meyervold runs Intellectual Ventures and invests heavily in the so-called patent troll or patent assertion entity, uh, the three patents in Microsoft in the Microsoft litigation all list Logan as the first named inventor. Ewing added, "Go to it." And Microsoft settled the dispute several months after the lawsuit was filed. 
Uh, right around the time of his work at GoToIt, Logan started a patent licensing company called Pause Technology LLC. Pause is still re- registered in Delaware, though through the corporate offices don't show it. Or corporate searches don't show it to be actively in business. Interestingly, Logan sued another a number of digital broadcasting companies via Pause. Logan also developed another patent licensing company called Emergent Technologies, which also appears to no longer be active. Logan's core team includes other inventors and a patent attorney, Charles Call. Emergent, interestingly, at one point included Mark Lowenstein. Lowenstein later headed corporate strategy for Verizon, is now a director at Mobile Ecosystems. This excerpt is from a piece I wrote for Computer World that explains the lack of transparency and how it fuels patent wars, disrupts innovation, and passes it along cost to the consumer. Most of the major tech companies are backing a troll in some way, probably financially, says Thomas Ewing, an attorney who's authored reports on what he calls patent privateering and whether patent giants are dangerous for American innovation. One example, according to patent attorneys and other experts, is Intellectual Ventures, a patent licensing firm founded in 1999 by former Microsoft executives Nathan Meyervold and Ed Jung, among others. Uh, According to court documents uh, that Ivy filed in April 2011 and then fought to keep secret, Ivy investors include Adobe Systems, Apple Incorporated, Cisco Systems, eBay Incorporated, Google, Intel Corp, Microsoft Corp, uh, Nokia, NVIDIA, International Holdings, SAP America Incorporated, uh, Sony Corp, Verizon, and Zilinx. Incorporated. Each of these tech companies made a financial investment in IV. All except Google and Adobe went for more than one round of funding. IV has raised at least $5 billion from investors, including tech firms. Below is Robin Feldman's letter to the USPTO urging transparency, then people will know who personal audio and, for that matter, Vernet X is, really is, and what, if anything, they have to do with intellectual ventures and other multi billion dollar patent assertion entities. All right, so there's that story, um, which I need to verify, and I will be doing so in the week or so ahead. Um, Yeah, basically, um, this story is nothing if not complex, and I don't want it to appear as if, you know, we've tried to simplify things in any way. Um, We've at least tried to clarify a lot of stuff, so there is at least that. Uh, Today's show was produced by myself. Um, and I guess all of the people who interviewed with me, uh, and their Skype connections and phone, I guess, quality. Um, I do want to thank, uh, Adi Kamdar and Stefan Kinsella and Richard, uh, Baker for agreeing to talk with me at all, um, on this issue that is obviously very, very, very complex. And, uh, yeah, you can go to the Electronic for Fun... Electronic Frontier Foundation's website, that's EFF.org, uh, forward slash shield to find out more about the Shield Act. You can visit personalaudio.net's website to or personal audio's website um, to see information on each patent that they hold. Uh, and you can check out um Stephen Gintella's book Against Intellectual Property at the link below. Uh, for Smash Balls Radio Podcast, this is Trevor Holtner. Um, wishing you all a wonderful weekend, and uh, I'll be seeing you next week. Hopefully we will be doing um, a themed show, which you can actually send us uh, suggestions on themes. Uh, and you can do that at uh, smashballsradio at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send us info on Twitter at smashwalls, and at our website, smashwallspodcast.tumblr.com. Um, but yeah. Until next time, I will talk to you guys later. 
Bye. Perfectly said, ladies, ladies, listen to me.